0: Good morning. My name is Jonathan Dorst. I used to be the pastor here. If I have not met you, I would love to do that. And uh, it's great. It is great to be back and um, to see so many familiar faces. Some of you are sitting in the exact same place you were when we left. Um, Some of you have grown. kids have all gotten tall, as have my children. You've noticed um, it, but it is a joy, and uh, I think it says a lot about Ryan and Emily that they would invite me back uh, to come and to preach and to be with you guys. And um, Ryan's become a, a dear friend, and I'm so glad he's here, and so excited about what's going on here at Grace Stillwater. Uh, I want to I want to go back in time uh, to sort of the founding of this church, and and uh, I. Not to hopefully not to indulge myself, but to uh, I, to to start off this sermon and um, I know some of you walked this story with me, and so you 'll recognize maybe yourself in that, but when I uh, moved here in two thousand and three to start the church, I was just sure that God was going to use our family and the core group that was getting started to, to plant the best church that this town had ever seen. After all, we I had the credentials, right, and the training. I had been to seminary, I had been on staff with three different churches. I had gone, I was going to the church planning conferences, reading the literature, and I had raised two hundred thousand dollars to come here. And we were ready to work hard, and we were praying. And I was just sure it was going to be the best and biggest church in Stillwater. And, uh, and unbeknownst to me, about the same time that we were coming, there was another church right, from another town that had come to Stillwater. They had found a guy who was a, a business manager, and they had tasked him with starting a new campus for their church, which would be run uh, in a different city. And uh, after about six years, we were here with about 100 people. They had over 2,000 people and had their own building. And I don't know that if I, I would have admitted it at the time, but I think my heart was really, if not angry with God, frustrated. Why are you doing this to me? I'm I'm giving you the some of the best years of my life. I moved my family across the country, right? And we don't have money to pay our musicians. We don't, you know, we don't have much. And that guy, he doesn't have my training, right? He doesn't even have to spend the ten to fifteen hours a week on a sermon. They just have the simulcast. Right? That. It's not fair, Lord. It's not fair. That's something that I think all of us can identify with in some way. Life is not fair. You work hard, you don't get to where you think you're supposed to be. Or you see other people not working as hard or cutting corners and they get ahead of you. And you feel like I I'm getting the raw end of this deal. There's a sports analogy. Russell Wilson is the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. And uh, when he was coming out of college, he's short for an NFL quarterback. And so he fell back in the draft, and, but he signed, I think was fourth round pick maybe, and he, he signed a, a four-year contract for not as much, way less than the first rounders and second rounders, right? But he signed the contract, he went into camp. And he battled hard for the the starting job. And he won it. He became the starting quarterback. And his rookie year, he won rookie of the year. Second year, he took the Seahawks to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl. Third year, he took the Seahawks back to the Super Bowl and they got within a goal line interception of winning the Super Bowl. Philip remembers that. It was just in January. He's starting his fourth year as the starting quarterback of the Seahawks. This year, until about a week ago, he was set to make $1.5 million this year. Now, keep that number in mind. There's another NFL quarterback, Cam Newton, quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. Cam Newton is set to make $31 million this year. Cam Newton has won one playoff game. Russell Wilson has won six playoff games and a Super Bowl. Then the two, right? Now, my guess is you're thinking what sometimes I think, which is a a million and a half. Poor Russell. I think I could get by on a million and a half. But consider this. Consider the scale, right? The NFL annually makes about $10 billion. Billion with a B. And where does that money come from, right? It comes from fans and television revenue. And who do we turn on the TV to see? Guys like Russell Wilson. And if guys like Russell Wilson don't get the money, who's it go to? The owners, right? It goes to the owners. They don't give us the money back if they don't give it to the players, right? So we're, we're paying the money to see the players, but the owners get the money. And that, while in a different different economic stratosphere from what you're used to, is not fair. Russell Wilson, up until he just signed his new deal, would have been getting a raw deal, comparatively. Now, Jesus tells us a story about injustice, economic injustice, in, in Matthew chapter 20. And he really shows us how we can stop getting the raw end of the deal. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 20, the first, the first book in the New Testament. And I'm going to start in verse 1. Why don't we stand for this reading of God's Word? This is Jesus speaking. He says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You, go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Father, we pray that you would make your word take root in our hearts. That you would teach us. In this time, that you bless the reading and preaching of your word, and that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives and for the kingdom. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus' story, there are really three instances of injustice that we're going to talk about this morning there's the injustice of the master. There is the injustice of the workers, and then there is the injustice of grace. So let's start with the first one. Uh, This story is about a wealthy landowner who has a vineyard, right? What do you make in a vineyard? You make wine in a vineyard, right? But he needs, the uh, the grapes have grown, they're ready to be picked, and so he needs laborers for his vineyard. And so he goes out at the first hour. And in biblical terms, the first hour of the day is 6 a.m. Okay, so he goes out at 6 a.m., and you can imagine him driving down to the street corner where all the day laborers are hanging out, waiting to be given a job. Right? And so he looks at this crew of day laborers, and you can imagine him picking out probably the, you know, the strongest, fittest laborers. And, and you know, he says, come on, work for me. And so they jump in the back of his pickup truck. Right? Now, there's an in- interesting detail here in verse 2. It says, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day. A denarius was a coin, and it was worth about a day's wages in that time. So it's a little little hard to translate today, but if we figure, what, $10 an hour for a day laborer, and the the work day, which we're going to see, is from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So 12 hours, $10 an hour, it's going to be $120 dollars. All right, so we'll say, it's a little arbitrary, but we'll say one denarius is $120. Okay? So he says, uh, after agreeing with the laborers, so they agree to this price. The Greek word there is symphonasis, which sounds like what? Symphony. Right? Many voices making one, one unison accord. And so they, they agree to that price, and they go, and he takes them, they work in the vineyard. So they start. But then three hours in, it gets to nine o'clock. And the master, he realizes there's more work than these guys can do. So he goes back to where the laborers are. He grabs a few more. They jump in the pickup truck. But there's a little difference this time. Verse three, the arrangement is, he just tells them, come work for me and whatever is right, I will give you. There's no agreement on a price. They don't know how much... They're going to be paid. They just go. They're they're either trusting in this master that he's going to do right by them, or maybe they're just happy to have a job. So they get in, and he takes them back, and now there are two groups of workers there. And they work, and then it gets to noon. And the master realizes, okay, I need more workers. So he goes back, and he grabs some more guys. Go work. I'll pay you what's right. 3 o'clock, he goes back again, gets some more workers. Right? Now it's, it's getting late in the day. Finally, at 5 o'clock, one more time, he says, I just need one more crew to finish up. So he goes back, he gets one last crew. And you can just imagine him arriving, right? 5 o'clock. These guys have been there all day. These are probably the, the lazy, the out-of-shape guys. Maybe they've been drinking, right? But that's all right. They jump in the truck. They all go back. And they work for an hour. And then it's, now it's 6 o'clock. It's quitting time. And so it's also payday, right? And so the, the master, he tells, he gives him his foreman instructions, and the foreman begins to write checks. Well, the, the last group comes. The 5 o'clock group comes. And you can imagine them, them expecting to get a check for $10, right? An hour's worth of work. Foreman writes out the check. $120. Oh, alright, this is a good gig, right? Then the three o'clock group comes. They've been working three hours, $120. Then the noon guys come, $120. Oh, this, is, this is good, more than I thought. Nine o'clock guys come, $120. So generous. Then the 6 a.m. guys come. These are the hosses, The guys have been working all day in the sun. And you can just imagine, they're expecting, alright, they've been generous with all these other jabronis, right? Surely we're going to get a bonus. $120. What? we got the same amount as all those other guys that hardly worked. We've been sweating all day. You know, if it's me, I, I don't know if I trust this master. At least, you know, tomorrow I'm hiding out to like three, right? The least amount of work for the most amount of paycheck, right? It doesn't make sense. What is it with this master? It's clearly he doesn't know how to motivate people. He doesn't know how to run his business. And then Jesus throws a wrench right in the middle of our outrage, doesn't he? Because remember how this parable starts it starts out the kingdom of heaven is life which tells us a couple of things it tells us that jesus is not primarily telling us a business story jesus is not teaching you how to run your business here he's not necessarily saying these are economic principles that everyone should follow that's not what he's doing this is a spiritual lesson this is a spiritual parable And the master, like in all of Jesus' parables, is God himself. And so the question that Jesus is compelling us to ask is, does God act unjustly towards us? Is God unfair towards us? And and then Jesus tells us, you see, It's you who don't understand justice because you don't understand God's generosity. And so we've looked at the the injustice of the master. Let's look at the injustice of the workers. Verse 13. The master defends himself against the grumbling of the 6 a.m. workers. The 6 a.m. workers grumble, complain. They voice their their complaints. And this is what he says. He says, Friends, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Remember, that first crew, right? They agreed on the price. And he gave them exactly what they agreed on, one denarius. There's no injustice there. He kept up his end of the bargain. They kept up their end of the bargain. There's only perceived injustice here. And then in verse 15, he asks maybe an obvious question. And then he lays their hearts bare. What he says Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So there's the big question for us Do you recognize God's generosity for you and for other people? Or, Or do we see God as, secretly see him as stingy? us. you see God of course as creator has complete right to do whatever he wants with the world that he has made and with the resources that are his and yet we so often think that we know how he should operate here's the thing how you see God and how you see his generosity will affect the way that you live your life and it will affect you at least three ways if you do not recognize God's generosity, if you don't celebrate it, both for you and for other people, the first thing that will happen is you'll become self-righteous towards other people. right? You will look down on the poor and the needy. Because obviously they haven't worked as hard as you and they don't deserve handouts or whatever they're getting. But not only that, you'll also look with some judgment on those above you, right? People who didn't have to work as hard to make more money, trust fund babies, right? They haven't done much. I'm working so hard. We become self-righteous. This happens in the church as well. We we want to limit God's generosity to other people. This may happen here. This may happen at, at my church in Tulsa both of us have been raising money for a building and we are are purchasing our building, it's also you guys are planning to build and I'm so excited. But something's gonna happen, right? You're gonna gonna sacrifice, right? Both with your time, with your finances, to get into this new building. And it's gonna be an accomplishment, but then six months later or a year later, someone's gonna come, a new person or a new family, And they're just going to plop down. Maybe they're going to sit in your seat. And they're going to act like they own the place. And you're going to think, whoa. Clearly you don't understand what we've been doing, how hard we've worked to get here. Right? You just think you can do whatever you want? And the answer is yes. They can, right? Because this is not your building. This is not my building. This is God's church. So, you become self righteous towards people. But then, another, the second thing that will happen if, if you don't recognize and celebrate God's generosity is you, you become a hoarder. Right? Now, maybe not like the TV show, right? The, the reality show. Maybe not that bad. But here's the thing if you are not looking to God to meet all your needs, and, and everybody knows you can't rely on other people to meet your needs, right? That only leaves one person for the job, right? Me. I've got to make sure I am providing for myself and I am providing for my future. And so we scrimp and we save and we become like the man in another parable that Jesus told, right? Who had this fantastic harvest of grain, so much so that it wouldn't fit in his numerous barns. And so instead of going and sharing with the poor, sharing with the needy, what does he do? Stares down his barns and just builds bigger ones. And we become hoarders. The third thing that happens when we don't celebrate God's generosity is that we become devastated when we can't work as hard. We can't perform like we think we need to to earn what we're getting. I recently watched a movie called Still Alice. And it's about this brilliant linguistics professor, Alice, who who gets Alzheimer's. And it comes on sort of slowly, but then progresses quickly. And there's one point in the movie where she realizes what's going on and she realizes she can no longer keep up teaching her classes and she has to resign. And it's devastating. to her. At one point she was the smartest person in the room almost all the time. Now she has trouble remembering her children's names. She has to have someone follow her around the house all day. And she's devastated. See, if life is about earning what you get when you can no longer do it, and your identity is built on earning, and you can't earn, you, in some ways you lose your identity. And when we don't understand God's generosity, we, we begin to grumble against Him. And we no longer love God for who He is, but really what He can give us. Okay? And too often we think He hasn't given us enough. So again, we ask the question how how can we feel, how can we get to the point where we are no longer getting the raw end of the deal? And here's where we get to the real injustice in this story, and that is the injustice of grace. We see it in verse 14, where the master again tells those grumbling workers, he says, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Again, God has the sovereign right to bless people as much or as little as He chooses. But that flies in the face of fairness for us, doesn't it? Because we see people and we see who are the deserving people and who are not. And so often the people who are not deserving get and the people who are don't. And it doesn't make sense to us. That kind of justice seems off. But you know who gets this? Bono. Bono gets this. The the lead singer for the greatest rock and roll band in the world. He says this in an interview a while back. He said this. At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you will, the consequences of your actions. Which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. He goes on to say, that, but that's between me and God but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross cross, because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. What's he saying? He's saying that the normal rule of life, karma, right? You get rewarded for the good. You get punished for the bad, right? It gets upstaged ultimately by grace. It gets overthrown. See, see the problem with trusting in karma, just the idea that maybe you can get better, is the problem with that is you will never get good enough to overcome your bad. You'll never get good enough to overcome your sin, right? You will never have a day like Bill Murray at the end of Groundhog's Day. Right? Or he has, he's learned all these lessons and so he lives the perfect day. Right? You'll never have that day. You'll never be able to work off all the bad parts of you. You and I will always be much more like Lady Macbeth. right? Who after she and her husband kill the king of Scotland, we see her at the sink trying to wash what she thinks is blood off of her hands. and She washes and she scrubs and she keeps trying to get the blood off but she doesn't it won't come off. It should keeps washing. That's us. I hear people say, I just want what I deserve. Friends, no you don't. You don't want what you deserve because the wages of sin is death. But the good news of Christianity is that God is more generous than you can ever imagine. And his generosity is really outrageous to self-righteous people, to self-reliant people who are relying on themselves to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Right? For them to make their lives work, grace does not make sense. And they, and they even would say, you know, this flies in the face of encouraging morality. Right? You can't tell people that, that God's going to be good to them no matter what. Or, or you'll take away the motivation to be good. But the the radical part of the, the cross and kind of grace is that the more you understand God's generosity, actually the more you'll want to work. The more generous you'll become, the more you'll want to love other people. Another person who gets this, Sarah Silverman. Now, this is, she's a comedian that I can't recommend. She's very crude. I kind of hesitate to talk about this. But she's got this bit. It is it, it's really kind of fantastic. She has this riff in one of her comedy shows about religion. And she's very irreligious. But she says this. She says, all religions are crazy. And, and the only reason you think your religion is not crazy is because you grew up with it. And it's your normal. Right? And she says this. Take Take Christianity, for example. She says, it's totally crazy. You're born a sinner and you're going to hell, but you can just apologize and then you'll go to heaven. If you're a murderer, same thing. Just apologize and you get to go to heaven. She says, Hitler could go to confession and say, forgive me, I killed six million Jews. And the priest would have to say, okay, Say ten Heil Marys, and Hitler goes to heaven. Now listen, she's wrong. Right? She's wrong. It's not, it's not just making an apology, right? The, the gospel is about coming into a relationship with the God of the universe that completely changes your life, completely changes your identity. But she's also kind of right. It is crazy that rapists and murderers can be forgiven and go to heaven. That is kind of crazy. And yet, that is the Gospel of the Kingdom. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. Some of the pretty people in this life, maybe the last ones to get into heaven, may not get into heaven. While murderers like David and Moses may be sitting very close to the throne of God. And if you can't stand that thought that that God would forgive such terrible people and that they might have a prominent place in the new heavens and the new earth, you do not understand grace. And if you begrudge God's generosity to other people, it actually may mean you might not be a part of God's people. You have to understand that you are the worst of sinners. That you don't deserve to get into heaven. Now it's interesting to me that the parable is about a vineyard and workers coming into a vineyard because that's actually... a a picture of the Kingdom of Heaven. Jesus says in another place that the Kingdom of Heaven is a feast. It's the place where we will feast with Him. We have the symbols of a vineyard, of a a farm here, and bread and wine. But see, nobody gets into the vineyard of the Kingdom of God by working hard. Nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven by making their own wine. You've got to drink God's wine. The only way that you can do that is by recognizing that Jesus first drank a cup of wine. But it was a cup not of joy, not of feasting, but a cup of suffering. It was the cup, remember when Jesus was in the garden, He knew He was was going to die. And He said, Father, if You would take this cup from me, yet nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And he went, and on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, so that you and I could drink the wine of joy, the wine of feasting in the kingdom. That's the only way you and I are getting into the kingdom through the blood of Jesus.